Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. When the United States Supreme Court handed down a decision overturning Roe versus Wade earlier this year, they left us with a host of questions and scenarios to grapple with. In the meantime, with the future of data privacy on the line, we turn to Dr. Michael Sinha, Professor of Law in the Center for Health Law Studies. Dr. Sinha is an expert in health law, intellectual property, and pharmaceutical policy. I'm Jessica Sacconi, Director of Communications for SLU Law, and this is a special live recording of SLU Law Summations for the first episode of this year's Health Law Live series. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Sinha. Ooh, you're on mute. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. For starters, do you mind um, providing our audience with some historical context for the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I will say uh, I'm probably oversimplifying this to some degree, but the Roe v. Wade case was a Supreme Court decision in 1973. Uh, that held that this right of privacy founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy, and that the detriment that the state would impose upon the pregnant woman by denying this choice altogether is apparent. Uh, The court uh, goes into uh, and discusses several of those harms uh, to the pregnant woman. Now, uh, flash forward to 2022, the Supreme Court in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization now states, it is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. The permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved like most important questions in our democracy by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. This is what the Constitution and the rule of law demand. Okay. So, all right, I have, we have a follow-up question here. So, but also, you've got me thinking too. So, okay, can you expand on what it means when, we, when they say returning the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh Many states in the United States have had abortion laws on the books for decades. Uh, in many cases, those laws were not even repealed when Roe v. Wade came down in 1973. Uh, there were a lot of laws that were passed that were set to uh, come into force upon overturning of Roe v. Wade. And then there are a lot of laws being considered right now mm-hmm. uh, in state houses across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have some states in some parts of the country that have expanded access uh, to abortion care. Uh, we have other states that have uh, made abortion effectively illegal and limited or altogether eliminated exceptions uh, for the health of the mother. Right. Now, we talked a little, about, little bit about this beforehand. How does this like play into the, what Lindsey Graham is proposing with his bill, right? Because we're talking about this state pu- putting rights back to the states, and then we're going to put them mm-hmm. federally. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting because 
the big message from the Republican Party was that abortion needs to be a state issue. So right. this proposed bill uh, really bringing this issue back uh, federally uh, caught a lot of Republican colleagues of Senator Graham off guard. Mm-hmm. So uh, I doubt it will gain traction in this Congress, but it's entirely possible that this was uh, yeah. the, the long-term objective. Okay. I feel like I have more questions for on that, but we're going to hold because we have a lot to get to today. Um, okay. So I understand if we're talking about the meat of or some of the concurring opinions in um, Dobbs that Justice Thomas raised some additional alarm bells. You want to talk about that or fill us in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really interesting because Justice Thomas in his concurrence with the judgment noted that in future cases, we should consider all of the Supreme Court's substantive due process precedents. And he names Griswold, which stood for the right of married persons to obtain contraceptives. He names Lawrence, which stood for the right to engage in private consensual sexual acts. And he names Obergefell, which was uh, the case that enshrined the right to same-sex marriage. Uh, you know, and interestingly, he did not mention Loving v. Virginia, which is the case um, allowing interracial marriage, of which uh, Justice Thomas is uh, in an interracial marriage, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly raising some concern that there is a domino effect right. uh, from this case. Right, right. Um, so we, we mentioned... Um, a little bit in the intro, uh, we're talking about, we want to kind of hone in on some data privacy issues. So what does the world of data privacy look like in this post-Dobbs world that we're living in? And and how does the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which I don't even think I've read that fully before, known as HIPAA, which is what I'm familiar with, (laughs) fit into this, I suppose? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really interesting because in the last several decades, um, Congress has been extremely concerned with health privacy. They have mm-hmm. passed a, a couple dozen laws that I could identify uh, that touch upon or directly govern health privacy in this country. Uh, HIPAA it tends to be the most commonly discussed and the most prominent of those laws. I would say high tech is probably up there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but HIPAA uh, it really only applies to what are known as covered entities. And so covered entities are defined as health plans, healthcare clearinghouses, and healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. So notably, it does not cover non-healthcare entities, and it also does not cover individuals sharing their own health right. data. Right. So I can ask and you a so, question about your yeah. health, and I'm not going to be violating HIPAA. Right. Right. Okay. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I and won't, so, so the big question here, okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair <laughs> enough. Um, so, so the big question here, you know, I think is can clinicians and facilities protect patients and themselves from having reproductive health information used to incriminate them, right? Mm-hmm. So not only for the patients, but in some states, uh, facilities or even the physicians themselves could potentially face criminal charges. Mm -hmm. So HIPAA has a fairly broad exception for giving information to law enforcement officials as required by law. So um, there is a pretty broad exception that's already in place. It's very commonly used for uh, child abuse and neglect cases across the country. Um, You know, one thing I've thought about in the wake of Dobbs is what happens if uh, unborn 
uh, fetuses or embryos gain personhood status? Um, are these child abuse and neglect laws going to come into play in that setting? Oh, gosh. But ultimately, the bottom line, so my colleague Carmel Shakar at uh, Harvard Law School wrote mm -hmm. an article in JAMA, and she really uh, highlights uh, what's going on with HIPAA pretty succinctly here. So she notes that HIPAA will not protect patients' privacy in the face of virtually any legal proceeding, mm -hmm. civil or criminal, especially if warrants, discovery requests, subpoenas, and law enforcement are involved. And that's ultimately going to be the case with any of these proceedings based on uh, state laws banning abortion. Mm -hmm. So just make sure that I'm clear. If, uh, they can subpoena like a doctor's records and you won't be, that won't be protected by HIPAA, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, if, if the argument a, is that it's, no, it's, it's the okay. argument is that if it's going to be used to determine whether or not a law was violated, uh -huh. then that uh, use is permissible. Again, okay. with the, the child abuse and neglect cases, okay. they obtain access uh, to healthcare records in order to determine whether or not that's the case. Okay. I feel like law and order has led me astray um, <laughs> on that. But anyway, we'll, we'll forget about that for now. So... Um, is there any like immediate impacts that you've noticed from um, after Dobbs, the Dobbs decision? Yeah, there are plenty, and and you've seen plenty of op-eds written, yeah. uh, comments on Twitter and other social media. Um, but for one, the demand for telemedicine abortion services and self-use of medication abortion has increased dramatically, mm. uh, especially in hostile policy climates. Um, accessing cross-state services can raise suspicion. Uh, and then just thinking about some of these um, websites like Just the Pill, Hey Jane, Abortion on Demand, um, are they really going to want to ship to a state uh, with restrictive abortion policies? Maybe they'll allow pickup or shipment to family or friends in a safe state. Mm -hmm. They're a safe state. But I think the idea here is that uh, people are planning ahead uh, for this eventual reality that uh, they may be put in a situation in which they do not have access or the ability to uh, terminate their own pregnancies. Okay. Um, so if HIPAA isn't a good shield, and then Congress has a vested interest in protecting patients in other ways, right? So like, but what, what happens when users choose to share their own information? Yeah, you know, I think this is really interesting, right? Uh, because we're talking about the world of social media, mm -hmm. right? For most social media, uh, you, when you register, you sign on to a privacy policy that most people right. are unlikely to read or understand. Yeah. And generally speaking, that provides no protection whatsoever, mm -hmm. right? Um, another a scholar was thinking about Facebook and Meta, and the business model essentially uh, bets on the fact that most users have accepted a bargain in order to uh, access social connection uh, and fun on social media platforms, mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. willing to give up a certain degree of privacy. And so this is the trade-off that uh, these companies are betting most people are making and, you know, billions of people are members of these platforms. So it's mm -hmm. obviously uh, successful, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, 
Go ahead. I, I think it's it's really interesting because social media, if you read some of the boilerplate language, they're effectively saying we can do just about anything we want with mm-hmm. your data. And if we decide we want more information, we'll potentially let you know, uh, potentially not, but we're going to continue to start tracking and potentially monetizing other information you provide us. So um, it's one of those things where uh, we've accepted, I guess, the risks over mm-hmm. time, but maybe mm-hmm. when we signed up for Facebook in, in 2008, that's very different than Facebook usage in 2022. Right. Absolutely. And I know that there are ways. So, well, first let's, there's, there's a case that I want to dig into you into with you, (laughs) but um, also aren't there ways that you can encrypt your messages on Facebook? And I mean, I know after learning about this case, I went on and I tried it. It's actually not as easy as it seems. Does that, how will, do you know how that will work or I mean, Yes. Right. So encrypted messaging uh, makes it harder, but not impossible Mm -hmm. for law enforcement officers to get access to messages. Uh, It's interesting because Facebook Messenger as a default is not encrypted, uh, but they uh, Meta purchased WhatsApp. So another Mm -hmm. uh, company and uh, message sharing app within their portfolio. And uh, WhatsApp is end to end encrypted, meaning Mm -hmm. that uh, anything in between the exchanges, it's the user who sends the information and the recipient that receives the information, uh, but the company does not retain uh, any of that mm-hmm. uh, messaging. Hmm. Noted. Um, okay, so the case that I alluded to is in Indiana, a mother and daughter, they're being prosecuted for abortion after Facebook compile, um, complied with a subpoena for their messages within the Messenger app discussing the abortion pill. I think she was like, here's how you use it, blah, blah, blah. To be clear, though, um, Facebook claims they are they were not informed of the abortion charges when they were served the subpoena or they complied. Um, but what does this mean for online communications? We kind of talked about this a little bit, but like, are they all fair game? And would there ever be an instance where a private company could refuse this type of subpoena? Yeah, a couple of things uh, that come to mind here. The first is uh, Facebook claims they were not informed. I, I guess the question is, had Facebook been informed, would they have acted differently? Right. In my sense, mm-hmm. they probably would not have. Um, but then the question is, is there any benefit uh, to a company like Facebook to refuse a subpoena like this? Uh, generally speaking, uh, they want to be in, in compliance with federal and state laws. And so mm-hmm. uh, I just don't see an instance in which they would actually uh, refuse a subpoena like this. Right. Now, mm-hmm. in, in terms of WhatsApp, for instance, they could say, well, you know, subpoena our data, but we don't have anything that's valuable or meaningful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a different, that's a different uh, scenario. Yeah. Basically, don't talk on on um unencrypted messages if you don't want the government to have access to it right that's what it sounds like yeah <laughs> okay um all right so immediately following the dobbs jacks dobbs decision social media was like flush with people recommending that women stay off these period tracking apps and and is there another instance where the government can utilize this type of information and can these app producers do anything to protect the privacy of, of their users? Mm-hmm. 
You know, again, I think we're, we enter a similar situation. The app producers also don't have huge incentives to uh, protect their privacy outside of so, – so if a court comes with a subpoena or mm-hmm. a judge requests information, re- requires a demonstration of certain information, are app producers going to um, resist that? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, could they encrypt end-to-end encrypt their data? Absolutely. I, I would hope some of them had already done that to begin with. But, but again, that's not uh, a foolproof solution either. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, reproductive smartphone apps—you uh, you could potentially track just simply downloading of those apps. Yeah. You can track use of those apps. Um, so period tracking, fertility tracking apps, where you actually upload and track uh, hormone levels. There's an interesting app called Fertilic Calm, mm-hmm. uh, which actually offers reassuring statements. Uh, there's an app for men and an app for women, um, and it could potentially track what you click on. Mm-hmm. Um, get information, uh, so what to do in the first trimester might be something you click on. That's going to generate a, a cookie to somebody uh, who may want to potentially misuse that information. And then what happens if you never click on the second trimester articles, right? Mm -hmm. What happens if you just stop using the app abruptly? Yeah. So I guess that sounds crazy to me, I will be honest. But also, like, when would this happen, right? So, like, is is there somebody sitting around being like, oops, let me check the period? I mean, like, or is it going to be – someone else, someone that's kind of instigating you looking into like, Hey, I think that this person likely had an abortion. Please go and look up all of their, their period tracking apps or their fertility apps. How does that work? I mean, there can't, I mean, mm. cause I don't know the, the first scenario sounds a little bit frightening um, in general. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, in, in some states, uh, they've uh, created uh, a scenario in which you effectively have bounty hunters. They provide rewards to average citizens who are uh, tracking and potentially reporting people who are uh, either having illegal abortions in the states, accomplices to, to illegal abortions, right? And mm-hmm. so what happens there is um, private citizens start policing facilities. They may try to collect and provide or sell data to law enforcement. That could be location data, that could be text messages, search and results. Uh, in fact, in some places, uh, license plate readers, geofences can, can collect data when a phone is in a particular location. Let's mm-hmm. say a, a Planned mm-hmm. Parenthood facility in a certain state, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you might be able to say, oh, here comes a vehicle with Missouri plates into an Illinois Planned Parenthood facility, which would raise some suspicion just in and of itself. And you Mm -hmm. might have someone outside capturing the license plate and trying to to offer that information to state officials in Missouri. But whether or not that's prosecuted is probably based on the law in that state. So like as in Missouri, I don't believe, I know that there has been some proposals for prosecuting people getting um, abortions out of state, but I don't know if it, that's the case. You might not. I don't know if you know either. So I guess that would depend whether yeah. or not they're going to prosecute it, depending on the laws within the state that that person right. is from, right? 
Right, but but once law enforcement decides to do that, they collect data, and that data could potentially include any of the things I've mentioned before. Okay. So maybe it includes tracking and geodata. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe uh, it includes payment data. So uh, medical data, medical and billing records could be accessible. Uh, evidence of patronage at a pharmacy that sells only abortion pills, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at charges at out-of-state Planned Parenthoods for, that cost much more than a usual checkup. Mm. Uh, flexible spending account debit cards within uh, individuals' health care uh, insurance plans could potentially be tracked. Uh, bank statements. Uh, even the online payment apps that so many of us use on a regular basis, Apple Pay, Cash App, PayPal, Venmo, Mm-hmm. Uh, they essentially all say in their user agreements that they're happy to turn documents over via warrant or subpoena. So uh, arguably banks may actually be a bit better at that than some of these online payment apps. Right. We're just putting our information out there very publicly. Mm-hmm. Uh, even cryptocurrency could potentially leave somewhat of a paper trail. So <laughs> it, it's really interesting. It's, it's yeah. really uh, potentially troubling. The amount of data that we generate on a daily basis that could potentially be used, even if it's quote-unquote de-identified, it could potentially be re-identifiable if triangulated with other data, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's really concerning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can, I, I, as a regular citizen, can find out what people are doing in Venmo pretty easily. <laughs> so I can only imagine what kind of um, powers mm-hmm. the government will have, the law enforcement. So we talked about some obvious ways that the this um, decision has impacted privacy. What are some, we kind of touched on a few more, for few of the obscure ones. What are some other, like, obscure ways? Yeah, you know, I read a, I read a really interesting article uh, published uh, a week or two ago. And it argues that, uh, so when we, when we log on to our patient portals, right, and mm-hmm. we get access to our own healthcare information online, um, that there are web scraping tools uh, that come from Google and other uh, platforms that are actually generating information and collecting information about the websites we visit, including our own patient portals. So they're potentially collecting information without our knowledge straight from those patient portals. And so that's another way in which our health, our private healthcare information is being collected and potentially uh, sold or shared to, other, uh, to third parties, used in advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think that's potentially very troubling. Yeah. Uh, there was a viral TikTok video of a woman who claimed that Amazon was requiring her to input personal information before purchasing a pregnancy test online. So... What is that information being collected for? What is that information potentially being used for down the line? Right? Yeah. So, like the my those you know my charts that we all use is that what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So my chart, uh, if it's open in a browser and you've already authorized, or the uh, the web browser is already uh, scraping data from any website yeah. you visit, it's it's going to do the exact same thing for my chart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot I didn't think of. Okay, so as we probably need to wrap up, though I feel like we could keep chatting for quite a long time here. Can you speculate on, on what happens next? 
you know, it, it's it's hard to speculate. Honestly, a lot of this was speculation to begin with, right? Uh, these are a lot of questions I'm raising, a lot of answers that I think are unknown. A lot of the post-obligate implications, generally speaking, remain theoretical and unknown, although we're, we're really quickly starting to see the ramifications in certain states. Mm-hmm. So I think the big point is that uh, we've corporatized our own personal data. We've allowed corporations to access and uh, use our data in any way that they see fit, right? And we continue to use and to uh, frequent platforms that do this as as a clear business model, right? And so if we don't have adequate privacy protections, um, then seemingly private data about our health becomes potentially readily available to law enforcement officers in some of these anti-abortion states. Mm -hmm. And so I think this needs to be considered in the context of a broader data privacy issue. So not Mm -hmm. just about... uh, data relating to abortion care, but the fact that our data are so readily being captured and uh, profits are being generated, our data are being sold on, on a regular basis, I, I think it's, it's tremendously problematic. Right. Also, you know, I think this, we should all take our big takeaway is maybe we should all start reading those um, things that we click and sign um, pretty when we're getting our apps and and things like that, to know be a more a little bit more self aware of, of uh, your your privacy, right? Um, okay, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I'm going to wrap up. Um, we do have a couple more Health Law Live series coming on, so thank you um, coming up later in the next month. Um, thank you for joining us today. And and um, I'm going to turn over to Amy Sanders real quick. Thanks so much, Jessica. On behalf of the Center for Health Law Studies at SLU Law, we want to thank you for attending today's Health Law Live podcast. You'll find a recording of this interview and previous Health Law Live recordings wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to seeing you next week on Tuesday, September 20th at noon for our Health Law Distinguished Speaker Series with Professor Anna Santos-Rushman, who will give a talk on her new book, Vaccines as Technology, Innovation, Barriers, and the Public Health. Other upcoming events are listed in the chat today, and be sure to check your email or our Twitter page for information on additional future events from the Center for Health Law Studies. Thank you to SLU Law Summations host, Jessica Sacconi, and to our guest and faculty member, Dr. Michael Sinha, for today's podcast. We will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law. <laughs>